Let's go to 1 Corinthians to begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 4 through 8. And in a sense, this is going to be a continuance of some of the thoughts that we shared this morning. And those thoughts we shared this morning is that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Every man presses into the kingdom and because the kingdom has arrived in such a powerful way it demands a powerful reaction from us. There is much to gain if we would pay the price of getting rid of everything that stands between ourselves and the kingdom. We're to seek first the kingdom. And if anything is standing between us and the kingdom, we need to take radical steps, violent steps if necessary. Pluck our eyes out, cut our hands off, cut our feet off if necessary to use the hyperbole that Jesus used. Whatever's in the way between us and the kingdom has got to go. But some of the times it doesn't go easy and we've got to get violent. We have to take it by force and press into the kingdom because we realize the massive loss if we don't. The massive loss if we don't. So the kingdom is like pearl of great price. The kingdom is like treasure hidden in the field. Once you know the value of it, you realize that the value of everything you have in life, add it all together, is pittance compared to the value of that treasure. And therefore you gladly sacrifice the loss of all things. Yes, you know, in, in the metaphor that Jesus would use, you sell everything that you have to liquidate it all so you got the finances to buy that kingdom. You lose everything so that you can gain the kingdom. That's radical language. That's radical stuff that Jesus is teaching. But oh, the joy. Oh, the joy of entering the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. Oh, the joy of it. Keep pressing. Keep pressing. And keep pressing. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 to 8, trying to build on some of these thoughts, it says in verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which was given you by Jesus Christ. That in everything you are enriched by Him, in all utterance, and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. These verses teach us about spiritual gifts. And one of the things that they teach us about spiritual gifts is that it's a blessing to be enriched in them. 
It's a blessing to have that supernatural utterance from God. It's a blessing to have that knowledge from God. It's God's gracious activity to pour out these gifts. And even though they were the subject of great abuse in the Corinthian church, because speaking in tongues and the word of knowledge, according to the whole epistle of 1 Corinthians, were some of their favorite gifts. They favored them above other gifts. But they also greatly abused those gifts. And Paul would have to give correction in chapters 8, 9, and 10 about their abuse of knowledge. And he would have to give correction in chapters 12, 13, and 14 of their abuse of speaking in tongues. But I want to point out to you that Paul's answer to abuse is not to stop it. Paul's answer to abuse is to correct it and give it proper guidance. Not to shut it down, but to redirect into proper understanding of those gifts. And according to these verses that we just read here, the gifts are intended to be used by the church right up until the appearing of Jesus. The gifts, the gospel is confirmed through them. The gospel is demonstrated to be real. The gifts, it says, establish the believer. The the gifts, it says, are to prepare the believer for participation in the Lord's kingdom. And he says, is the operation of the gifts in your presence when you were converted. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, our gospel was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the power of God, so that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but your faith would stand in the power of God. You're a believer because you met God. You're a believer because you encountered His presence and you encountered His power. It wasn't just a dry doctrine that you heard. You had an encounter with the living God through the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They participated. They, they, they were confirmed. They were established in the faith because they met God in a very supernatural fashion and a very supernatural way. The message of Christ is always attested by the miraculous power of God. And according to these verses, right until the appearing of Jesus. And and Paul begins this epistle by thankful for the gracious gifts of God in terms of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, even though those manifestations were being terribly abused by that Corinthian church. I am not what is called a cessationist. You might say, what's that? A cessationist is a person who believes that the miraculous activity of the Holy Spirit quit after the first century. A cessationist would believe that now that you've got your Bible and all the doctrine is there in your Bible, that there is no more need for the supernatural activity A cessationist wrongly assumes that the miracles and the gifts of God, the supernatural activity of the gifts of God, were there uh, to prove that the doctrine that you preached was correct. And since now we've got all the doctrine in the form of the New Testament, we don't need that supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit anymore. And all I can say to that kind of reasoning, nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Where on earth would we get that in the scripture? And a favorite passage that people like to use is 1 Corinthians 
chapter 13. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. You know, and if you just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, a passage of scripture that is greatly taken out of context. It would say in verse number 8, charity or love never fails. If there's prophecy, they will fail. If there's tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will vanish away. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And verse number 12, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am and known. And cessationists take those verses to teach that now that we have the Bible, the New Testament, the canon is complete. There is no more need for supernatural attestation to prove the doctrine, which is just unfortunate. When do the gifts cease? The answer is simple. When that which is perfect has come. So what is that? I'll tell you what that is. That's the appearing of Jesus. That's that which is perfect. It's the appearing of Jesus. What does it mean? You know, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. What does that phrase face to face mean? That's an Old Testament uh, phrase that's used frequently in the Old Testament. It simply means being able to see God in His fullness. When's that going to happen? At the appearing of Jesus. When will we know as we are fully known? At the appearing of Jesus. When do tongues and tongues and prophecy pass away? According to this scripture, the same time knowledge passes away. Nobody wants to put knowledge away. But if you're going to put tongues and prophecy away, you've got to put knowledge away as well. Because they're all in the same package in this particular scripture. When will they cease? When it says we know in verse number 8 that they will fail, they will cease, they will vanish away. Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians, let me tell you other things that cease, vanish, and pass away. In chapter 15, verses 24 and 26, death will cease, vanish and it will pass away at the resurrection. Chapter 7, verse 31, the fashion of this world is passing away. All those references are to the end of history, the end of time, the end of this present age, when Jesus brings it all to a conclusion at His appearing, that's when the gifts of the Spirit will cease. Until then, we need them. Until then, we need empowerment. Until then, we need that anointing, because it's the anointing that breaks the yoke of bondage. We need the gifts of miracles, we need that word of knowledge, we need that word of wisdom, because that's what it takes to displace the powers of darkness. Because it's not by might, it is not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And until then, in the work of evangelism, and in the work of missions, the Bible is quite clear we need the demonstration of the power of God the Bible is very clear in what it says in that respect the gifts are necessary for the building up of the church 1 Corinthians 14 about prophecy it says it edifies it exhorts it comforts and the gifts are to be used for the building up of the church 
We have to understand it's the ministry of the Word and it's the ministry of the Spirit that builds and builds and builds the church. And if we don't have emphasis on either one, nothing is getting built. When Jesus said, I will build my church, He does it through the ministry of the Word and He does it through the ministry of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's how the church is built up. And you could just take notes if you want and look at these scriptures on your own. But if you compare Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, and compare that with Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 to 18, because Hebrews is quoting Isaiah, you just read the context there, and it says, The children of God that you have given me are for signs and for wonders, according to Isaiah. And you read the context of Isaiah, the purpose of the signs and the purpose of the wonders is for the building of the house of God. If you compare Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 13, where it talks about God has given apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, till we all come to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. When you start reading about the gifts that God has given and compare it to where he's quoting in Psalm 68, verses 16 to 18, where Ephesians 4 is quoting, again, you read the context, the purpose, The purpose of all of these supernatural giftings is so through those giftings God will build himself a house. The church is built by the supernatural divine enablements of the Holy Spirit. It is is not through natural talent. It is not through natural ability. It is not through learning. It is not through education. But I'm not against learning and I'm not against education. But those things in themselves don't do the job. It takes the supernatural divine enablement, the giftings of God, the giftings of the Holy Spirit. That's what builds the church. If you don't say amen, I will. Amen. Amen. It's the supernatural presence of God in the gifts of God that builds the church. Amen. Amen. When it comes to outreach, Jesus gave specific command to his disciples. Don't leave home without it. Tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. These guys had spent years with Jesus. They were even participating in some of the miracles. One of them even walked on water. They all passed out the bread that multiplied. They had seen Jesus raise the dead. And they were even commissioned to go out to heal the sick and cast out demons, cleanse lepers, and even the command to raise the dead. And they had seen supernatural things. And they came back to Jesus with with awe in their hearts and said, Man, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And yet to these same people, who had all of those experiences, who had the best Bible school in the world, Jesus as your personal tutor, My goodness. He said to that group of people, I'm leaving and don't you dare try to go out until you are endued with power from on high. The work of missions and the work of outreach is no natural thing. It is supernatural. It has to be led by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, giving final instructions to his disciples, said, These signs 
shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall lay hands upon the sick and they shall recover. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it's not going to harm them. These signs shall follow them that believe. And if we're going to do outreach, and if we want to see the power of God break through, then we have to be inundated with the Holy Spirit. We have to be inundated with the Holy Spirit because it's not by might and it's not by power, but it is by the Spirit of God. God has prepared people's hearts and we have to have instructions from God what to do, where to go, and how to go about it. And it's all supernatural. There's nothing natural about it. It's supernatural. It's impossible to read the Gospels and not see the place of praying for the sick in outreach. It's impossible. You, we, we've got to be blind not to see it. When you read through the Gospels, we realize that the gifts, especially the power gifts of casting out demons and praying for the sick, that was the greatest means of drawing attention to the Gospel. It produced crowds. Amen. It produced crowds. The goal of evangelism, again, uh, forgive me for the repetition, but may we get it deep into our hearts. The goal of outreach is not to get someone to say a prayer. The goal of outreach is to displace spiritual and physical ruin with the power of the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, Jesus said, then you know that the kingdom has come nigh to you. And the goal is not solely to populate heaven, but thank God for heaven. But the goal is to displace spiritual ruin with the power of God in people's lives. Physically and spiritually so. And therefore the core of our mission as we go out is divine enablement. Luke 4 verses 18 and 19. If Jesus started his ministry out like this, who am I to think I could do any less? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Anointed me to do what? Preach the gospel to the poor. In other words, you're going to displace poverty in people's lives. Physical poverty and spiritual poverty. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to displace poverty with the things of the kingdom of God. To open the eyes of the blind. To set at liberty those that are bruised. To heal up the brokenhearted. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. To tell people the good news that the kingdom has finally arrived. And it's that supernatural divine enablement that expresses the message that we have to give. If you read passages like in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, you read passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you read passages like Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 to 5, or you read in Romans 15 verses 18 and 19, the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that when we go out to preach the gospel, we must do it in the demonstration of the power of God. We must do it in the demonstration of the power of God because it's through the gifts that the gospel is expressed. It is through the gifts 
that the gospel is manifested. Now the gifts are not the gospel themselves, but they express the gospel and they manifest the gospel. And that is normal New Testament preaching. That's what we're after. How is the body of Christ a reality? We talk about being the body of Christ. What makes us the body of Christ is every person functions in a gift. A supernatural gift. That's what makes us a body. It's a metaphor that only works when people are flowing in the giftings of God. So our responsibility with this, and this is where I want to catch on this idea that we press, our responsibility is that you and I, according to the scripture, are responsible for seeking God for his divine enabling. Cannot be passive. We are responsible to seek God for his divine enabling. Now, every gifting is sovereignly determined by God, and he distributes the gifts as he wills. Have you ever looked at somebody else and say, I wish I could do what they do? You ever wonder that? I wish I could pray like that person prays. I mean, they seem just to get on their knees and they pray, and within three minutes they're storming the gates of heaven. And when I pray three minutes, I'm still trying to catch my wandering mind. You know, have you ever seen the divine empowerment? Or have you ever seen other people who just prophesy so easily? And it's a struggle for us at times. Or if you, you know, but the thing is, we all have different gifts. And God has made you with the DNA that you have, with the temperament that you have, and you are unique to this world, and God has a mix of gifts to flow through your heart and to flow through your life. And God has determined that, and it is God who distributes the gifts as He wills. I don't choose the calling of God. I don't choose the gifting of God for myself. That is God's sovereign choice. If you want scripture for that, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4. 1 Corinthians 12 verses 7 through 11. That God is the one who makes that choice. However, that does not mean that I respond to that in a passive manner. Every gift of the Spirit is a divine cooperation. Every manifestation of a gift of the Spirit is a partnership between God and you and me. God and man. And it's because of the man's part in the equation that we have to practice discernment and testing. There's never anything wrong on God's part of the equation, but sometimes with man we can get it wrong or the flesh gets in or something. But it's always a divine cooperation. God doesn't do it on its own on his own, and we can't do it on our own, but it is a divine partnership of the two always coming together. And therefore, knowing that we are responsible to wait on God, we are responsible to seek divine enablement, in line with what we shared this morning, the gifts will not be manifested if we are passive people. I'll say that again. They will not be manifested if we are passive people. It's a false view to say, well, if God wants me to have a gift, He will just give it to me with nothing on my part to do. That is a serious misunderstanding of Scripture. 
Every ministry and every gift must be developed by the habit of waiting on the Lord. Must be developed by attending to that gift. That gift, even though God sovereignly gives it, on our part we have to seek after it. We have to seek after it. It has to be nurtured. It has to be cultivated. It's according to our faith, Romans chapter 12. According to the proportion of faith. To repeat myself, every gift is expressed as a partnership between God and the believer. He sovereignly makes the decisions. He sovereignly bestows things. And it's our responsibility to seek it out, to wait on God, to cultivate it according to the proportion of our faith. And we cannot be passive if we remain passive passive, the gift remains hidden in the field. We have a responsibility in this. And so, understanding that, then we can understand a variety of exhortations that we find in the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul, about our attitude or our, our, our openness to the things of the Spirit. And let me go through some of these with you. Ephesians 4 verse 30 it says grieve not the Holy Spirit by which you are sealed unto the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is a person not just a spiritual force not in it and the Holy Spirit is capable of emotion. The Holy Spirit seems to be able to experience grief and could experience emotional sorrow. And in the context of Ephesians 4, when it says, don't grieve the Spirit of God, the context there, if you read the verse in front of it and the verse after it, is the way we use our tongues. Isn't that amazing? How we speak can grieve the Holy Spirit. If there's any bitterness in our heart, that grieves the Holy Spirit. If we hold back forgiveness in our hearts, that grieves the Holy Spirit. If we let what the New King James says, corrupt communication come out of our mouth, that grieves the Holy Spirit. Loose talk and loose jesting grieves the Holy Spirit. And if we want to cooperate with God, and if we want to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we really have to watch our hearts, and have to watch our tongues, and not create grief for the Holy Spirit. A story that I wish I came up with, but is not original to me, and you've probably heard it uh, many times, but it's worth, worth repeating. An older couple bought a house out in the countryside and and one day they noticed a dove in their back I can I say backyard, you say back garden. In their back garden is this dove. And you know when the dove was there it just brought a sense of isn't that lovely, a sense of tranquility, a sense of calm and a sense of peace. But the problem with this couple is they weren't exactly calm and peaceful themselves. They had this tendency to raise their voice with one another. And they weren't exactly quiet when it came to closing doors. And so they would, hey, what are you doing? And they slam a door, and you know what happened? 
the dove just went, disappeared. Oh, it's too bad the dove went. But in time, the dove comes back again. Oh, there's that dove. But soon enough, you know, someone just hits the door just a little hard, and there goes the dove again. And they got thinking about it, and they said to one another, Do you like it when the dove is there? Oh, yes. Why do you like it? Well, the dove just seems to bring a sense of peace, and tranquility, and just calm and nice, and so peaceful. Then they came up with this great revelation. If we want the dove to stay, we realize that the dove will never adjust to us. We have to adjust to the dove. Now that's powerful. The Holy Spirit is not going to adjust to us. We have to adjust to Him. And that's why that's what's behind this phrase where it says, Grieve not the Spirit of God. Because we can chase a peaceful dove away and wish he would come back. We have to adjust to the dove. First Thessalonians 5.19, Paul would say, Don't quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. That means don't put out the fire. One of the pictures of the Holy Spirit is fire. You know, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Don't put out the fire. Don't be throwing water on the fire. <coughs> Don't react to abuse with non-use. Don't suppress and don't stifle the manifestations of the things of the Spirit. When the Corinthian church made great errors in their practice of the Spirit, Paul did not quench the practice of the Spirit. What he did do is through teaching, he brought correction, but he never did away with the practice of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. He never made a rule, we don't have church, and in this service we don't do that. He never did that. Instead, he gave instructions because he knew without the presence of the things of the Spirit, the church doesn't get built. It takes the manifestation of the Spirit to build the church. So we don't quench it. We don't put the fire out. We don't stifle it. 1 Corinthians 14.39, he said, Don't forbid. Forbid not to speak in tongues. Don't make a rule to stop the practice. Yes, it may need to be corrected, but don't throw a baby out with the bathwater. Well, that's a powerful thing that that Paul was saying there. Don't forbid to speak in tongues because that's the very gift they were greatly abusing in the Corinthian church. But he says, I'm not going to tell you to stop it. I'm going to give you correction about its proper use and what it's for. 1 Corinthians 14.1 is a positive thing. I told you what not to do. Don't grieve it. Don't quench it. Don't forbid. But 1 Corinthians 14.1, it says, desire. I like that word, desire. Desire spiritual gifts. That word desire means burn with zeal. Burn with zeal about it. Be heated and boiling over in your desire to be the expression of God through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Be zealous in the pursuit of a good thing. It means to earnestly pursue. It means to exert yourself. It means to press 
and press and press. It's the same word, this word desire, in a negative sense in the New Testament. It's the same word that desires the danger of passion, the danger of envy, the danger of being consumed with envy, the danger of being consumed with lust. That's the same word. But we are to be consumed and impassioned about seeking God that he may express himself through us with divine enablement. The whole idea of you catching here is passivity won't ever get the job done. We have to exert ourselves. God sovereignly bestows what gifts, but we have to be passionate about making ourselves the vessels through whom God can express himself. We are to desire. It's the same word that's found in 1 Corinthians 12.31. The old King James Bible says, covet. Covet earnestly the best gives. It says in 14.39, covet to prophesy. There's one thing you get to covet. Burn with desire. You see... The church needs to be built. How is it built? One of the major ways it's built is through prophecy. There's a lost world out there that needs the power of God. We need to covet the supernatural ability of God to touch the needs of a lost and a dying world. God is not one that any should perish, but He needs His people to press in these things, to covet these things, to to burn with zeal over it. We have to love the lost so much that we wait on God for the manifestation of His power so we have something to give them. They need to be set free. And we're the instruments that God wants to use. But we're so used to a habit of just praying and that somehow without our involvement, God is going to do something in people's lives. No, we pray so you can be the tool in the hands of God for supernatural impartation into people's lives. And this is the attitude the New Testament says we are to take. When Paul corrects the abuse in the Corinthian church, he does not tell them to stop craving the things of the Spirit. Rather, he redirects their strong desire so it happens in an edifying manner. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, he uses this phrase, don't neglect. Neglect not the gift that is in you. Don't neglect it. That word neglect means don't be treating this subject lightly. It means don't thinking, well, this is actually optional. It's not. He says, don't neglect it. Don't treat this as a light manner. That means do not be indifferent to our responsibility. Do not disregard this as being unimportant. Because people can tend not to take things seriously. We get so accustomed to doing away something in a certain way that we lose the conviction. Of, of what the Bible tells us that we should be. We don't want our hearing to be dull. We want to respond in the way we should respond. 
The kingdom of his heaven has come with force and magnificent power. And because it's come in a mighty way, it demands a mighty response from us. And that's what Paul is getting at. You know, uh, Matthew 22 and verse 5, you know, the same Greek word is used there. Neglect not, except it doesn't say the word neglect. It says that the king invited people to a banquet and some made this excuse, well, I just bought some oxen or just married me a wife or I just whatever. And it says they treated it as a light thing. They treated the invitation as a light thing. We treat the kingdom of heaven as a light thing. And the New Testament tells us don't treat it as a light thing. Don't neglect it. Don't treat it as unimportant and don't be indifferent. In 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, he gives us this command, stir up. Stir up the gift that is in you. Stir it up. What does that mean to stir it up? Well, if you're going to start a fire, get some kindling going. Put some kindling down. It means let your mind and your attitude become inflamed about it. It's caused the billows to blow on the coals. This word stir up in the Greek, you've got a picture of a hot coal that's not so hot anymore. And it's, it's dying out. But you know what you do? You get your billows and you start blowing on it. And you start feeding that fire. You start giving it some oxygen so the fire begins to take on again. And that's what he's saying. Don't let the fire go out. Stir it up. Breathe on it. Breathe on it. Get some air into this thing. Get some oxygen so that what used to be flame comes back and bursts into flame again. That same passage in 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. Fear doesn't mind the fire going out. Having fear is the opposite of stirring it up. You know, some people are extroverts by nature. Some people are introverts by nature. Whatever. Some people need to overcome their shyness and embarrassment, and some people need to be reined in. You know, it really... But the point is, don't bury the gifts. Don't bury them. God has overgiven, given us a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. So in practical terms, how do we apply this? How do we go about it? There's good ideas in 1 Timothy 4, 13 and 4 to 15 where he says, don't neglect the gift that is in you. Paul would say this to Timothy, to wait on his ministry, to attend to his ministry by paying attention to ourselves, by watching over our hearts, by giving ourselves to prayer, giving ourselves to meditation, giving ourselves to reflection, giving ourselves to prayer and to seeking the hand of God. The Bible makes it plain that we're responsible to maintain our spirit-filled life and our spirit-filled walk. When it says, be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, the Greek is, you maintain being continuously full of the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility to keep that connection with God 
going. First Thessalonians 4.9, God gives the Holy Spirit. And the, in the Greek, again, it's as God gives and gives and gives and is continually giving, continually pouring out, continually imparting. So we continually come to His presence to continually receive. We continually come to Him in prayer. That we continually have His hand upon our lives. So we have the attitude of personal preparation. We have the attitude that we're pursuing God. Obviously, that's all it becomes a lifestyle uh, for us. But we press in for His wisdom. Press in by prayer. Press in by meditation of His Word. Uh, provoke one another to these things. Encourage and admonish one another in these things. The church needs to be built up by God's resources. And the world needs to be set free by God's resources. We need Pentecost. We need His power. We need His presence. He's not going to do it without us. But in order to cooperate with Him, we have to press into that kingdom. Press into that kingdom. And press into God. And press into His heart. So that the will of God is fulfilled. I'm hungry for the presence of God. I'm hungry to see people saved. I'm hungry to see people healed. I'm hungry to see them delivered. I've tasted too much to let it go. I'm hungry for His presence. I want Jesus to build His church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm pressing in. I mean in business. Pursuing God with all that is within us. May we live up to the desires that God has for us.